Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Human Voice. As always, Bob Hutchins here. I actually have a classmate of mine. Recently, in the past couple of years, I may have mentioned on the podcast that I've gone back to college and gotten an organizational psychology degree. Erica First is with me on the program today. And before we get into the details of Erica's life and how we connected, I want to tell you a little bit about her background. She's the founder of Moodily. It provides mood management solutions for the workplace, improving employee well-being and performance. After having suffered a stress-related vision loss burnout incident in 2015, can't wait to talk about that, by the way, that forced her to leave her role as the global advertising media and digital director at Ray-Ban, Erica returned to school to study the effects of stress on the mind, body, and brain. She completed a postgraduate program in the neuroscience of mental health and a master's degree in organizational psychology. Combining her corporate experience and state-of-the-art education, she created Moodily with the mission of creating better workplaces one mood at a time. Moodily's solutions for organizations include keynote sessions, group training, one-on-one executive coaching, a proprietary mood-moving app, and white-labeled well-being and performance content to improve morale, productivity, and performance in your workplace. Erica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bob, for having me. Yes, yes. Now, you are in Milan, Italy, where you've lived for how long? 22 years. Okay, but you were raised in New York City, correct? I was, yes. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to talk to you. We've had very, very similar life experiences and uh, backgrounds and and the paths that, that we arrived at getting our master's degree in organizational psychology from London Met, which, where we met. But I'd love to to talk a little bit about that path. Can you can you take me back to being raised in New York City, and then let's talk about that journey that landed you in Milan, Italy, where you've been for 22 years. So you graduated from the Dalton School in New York University. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. It's funny, though. So I grew up on the Lower East Side in Alphabet City, which in the 80s was so different than what it is now. Just to give you an idea, none of my friends were allowed to come over to my house because their parents thought it was far too dangerous, and they were right. (laughs) My mother worked in nightclubs. She threw parties at nightclubs. My father was a copywriter for an ad agency. He wrote part-time for the Encyclopedia Britannica. He was also studying to be a priest at the General Seminary in New York. So I had two completely polar opposites of human beings as parents, which has kind of been a thread that has run through my entire life of me being sort of the bridge between two very polar extremes. And so I had these two polar extremes as parents and I grew up in the East Village around like we always had really cool people and really interesting cultural people, people that were in the papers for being, you know, musicians or artists or whatever at that time. So I've, I grew up in a very eclectic community and I also grew up, you know, around people much older than me. I was 13 and hanging out with people that were in their 20s, 30s. So that was like my home life. And then my day life was that I went to school at this incredibly posh 
Upper East Side private school that housed some of the most powerful and wealthiest families in New York. And so every day I had these two sort of completely different universes that together made up my experience. And while I was there at Dalton, I didn't really, I'm not one of those people that likes you know, fraternities or sororities. I don't know how to thrive. I was like a hardcore New Yorker and I was sure that I would have lived in New York City until I dropped dead. And so I decided to go to NYU instead of going to school outside of the city. And they actually had a program there called the Gallatin School, which was perfect for me because I didn't wasn't like super passionate about anything, but I'm curious about everything. So the beauty of Gallatin was that it would let me take classes according to my interests. And then at the end, you have to write a paper. It's actually more work because at the end, you have to sort of put together a thesis that um, sums up your experiences. And since I always figured that you didn't like, if you weren't going to be a doctor, you weren't going to be a lawyer, it doesn't really matter what you go to school for. You just have to go to school. And so I decided to focus my, my studies around three areas. One was psychology, one was fine art history, and the other was cinema studies. And I didn't know it at the time. I do now looking back on my life when all sorts of, you know, everything makes sense when you look backwards, but I was very drawn to communication and how even just on the the printed page or with a visual image, you can communicate and convey emotions and meanings and how one simple look can undo a whole story that's been building up. And I was very, very passionate about that. I actually, I've always been sort of like a moderately good student until I discovered that when you study things that you love, you you do better at them. Yes, indeed. You know, when I was like forced to study all the things that I was terrible at, I was not doing well and I hated going to school when I had the, and as a matter of fact, I loved college because it was me really owning my education and the things that I was interested in. And I managed to put almost everything to, to work um, for me in eventually what I ended up doing. But so I went to NYU I got a boyfriend in college, as we all do, (laughs) or not. As my graduation present, he gifted me a trip to Italy to go and see the works of art that I had studied in my art history classes and also in my Italian film classes. And so in 1996, I left the United States for the first time. And I went to Italy and we went to Rome, we went to Siena, we went to Florence, we went to Venice, like did the sort of classic greatest hits tour. And when I came back, my entire universe had completely changed. It was also around the same time that A Room with a View had come out, which was, I don't know, Ian Forster's Merchant Ivory version of that. And I, there was a scene of these two, this beautiful couple in a sea of sunflowers and you know lunches under dripping lilacs and I was like yes that's what I want my future to look like (laughs) and and my father was born in Holland so I discovered after talking to them that I was eligible for a Dutch passport 
And, but the Dutch are very serious. They, they're like, you either need it or you don't need it. We don't just collect passports. And so the rule was that if you got a passport, you had to live in Europe for, it was only valid for five years. And you had to live in Europe for at least two of those five years consecutive. And I was like, okay, I'm 24 years old. I have nothing. I mean, I was like, I had just started working in advertising. I was a staff assistant for a very hot advertising boutique back in the day called Emirati Puris Lintas. And, but it seemed to me like the obvious answer was just to pick up and move to Italy. And I remember going in to tell my bosses that, you know, that I was going to be leaving for Italy soon. And I would love to stay with the company. And if they had an opportunity for me, that would be great. But that I was also going to be looking for a job. And the truth is they should have fired me on the spot, but they did. They actually set up an appointment for me with the company here in Milan. And so I came out for an interview and I landed in Milan. And let me tell you, it looks nothing like Florence, especially not back in 19, this was 1998. It's gotten much nicer at the time, but it was like totally an Instagram reality moment when I had these ideas of beautiful Florentine hills and you land in gray Milan. But I got the job and I moved here five months after. So September, 1998, I moved to Milan to work in an advertising agency. And that was sort of the beginning of the second chapter of my life. And then from there, obviously you must've quickly moved up the ranks. You end up working for, for Ray-Ban, is that correct? Or did you have a few jobs before then? Well, I actually, I did two years in Italy and then I moved back to New York for two years. At that point I had met, I actually met the man I would marry and divorce uh, a few weeks before moving to Italy. He was in New York and, and I was leaving. And while I was in Italy, we got together and then we moved back to New York at the same time. And we were living in New York when September 11th happened. And, you know, it, it shook up every one of my life plans. And so we decided to move back definitively to Milan in 2002. And from there, I worked for another ad agency. And then I got a job working for a white goods company. It's now owned by, I think Whirlpool bought it. It was a local company called, and I was working for them. And my boss, our CEO of that white goods company went to go work for Luxatica. And he took my boss with him. And then my boss took me. So in 2005, I joined on as the the head of advertising media and digital for, I always say Ray-Ban because it's obviously the most recognizable, but I was actually running all of the brands in um, their portfolio, both wholesale and retail. So it was a huge, huge job, but an amazing one. Yeah. You were early on in digital, right? In the early 2000s, right? Yeah, well, we had an agency. So because it was Ray-Ban and because Ray-Ban is so difficult to get right because it really has an American soul and it's been on the face of every cool person in history that it had to be done properly. And so when we did a pitch um, for agencies, we invited a whole bunch of agencies all over the world, but the one that ended up winning was based in San Francisco. And they had just the right the right language and the right tone of voice. So the, we they were in San Francisco, which obviously in the, in that time, which was around 2006, 2007, 
was a hotbed of startups and all this creative energy. So we were encouraged to fail forward and to test. And so, you know, we were some of the first people to work with YouTube on their partner program. We had Facebook in, like Facebook was trying to explain stuff about Facebook that even they didn't know. And we were explaining it back to them. So we were, we tried to embrace it as much as possible because especially since Ray-Ban has like always been about being on the cutting edge of, of culture and Mm. society, that was really where music and everything was happening. So we really thoroughly embraced it and it ended up it was obviously those were the the golden days because we were able to get a ton of response in media that was organic, which today is just basically impossible. So interesting. And I know you worked there for a while. You even have a pair of sunglasses named after you. (laughs) I do the Erica's and the story behind that is actually quite funny. We were launching a new line of young, like younger positioned glasses. So more like fresh styles and lower priced, easier materials. And they had this one that I had, I had found a pair, a shape similar at a vintage market. And I sent a picture to the product department and they were like, oh, well, we're working on something similar. And so we needed to give them names because, you know, when you're dealing with the young, cool kids, you got to have names for them. And so they decided that they would call that one Erica. And I wanted the, there was a female and a male version, even though they're basically unisex, but I wanted the male version to be called Brad for Brad Pitt, but they thought that that would be too obvious. So we went with Justin, which was for Justin Timberlake. Or, or or not. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but that was the, the background. And yes, and actually, surprisingly, it actually turned out to be the first iconic shape that they, you know, the, the first shape that they launched that ended up becoming one of the best selling icons. So that's great. I, that's great. I always use a little, joke. you know, I see somebody wearing them. I'm like, oh, it looks good on you. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So fast forward, if you would, you were there for a while and work became a lot to say the least. What what happened? So nothing happened and everything happened. I was there for 10 years. In the meantime, I had had a daughter. I got a divorce, you know, in 10 years time, especially around that age is between 28 and 38, a lot of life happens. The brand also took off. It went from being, if I'm not mistaken, it was like a 500 or $900 million brand into a $5 billion brand. So, you know, it just exploded. The work that we were doing exploded. My team exploded. And so, and I also had a growing child at home that I, I didn't want to ignore. So I was trying to do everything perfectly. And in order to do that, I would fly to China, have a meeting and then get back on a plane the same day, you know? So I was really, Hmm. I remember one trip in particular, I flew, I left my daughter's birthday party. I flew to China, got there in the morning, changed my clothes in the airport, which is not pretty. Went to the office, had the meeting, came back to the airport, flew to Australia, (laughs) another meeting the next day, and then got the first flight out to Bangkok, then London, then back to Milan. And I was able to do all those countries in like three days, four days with the the time. And I would do that regularly. So I would fly Mm -hmm. to LA for a day. And I was kind of getting to a point where I was like, I 
definitely can't keep these rhythms up. I'm, I'm older. I was, you know, around 2015, I was 41. So I was like, I can't be doing this for much longer. I also, you know, you have to be at the forefront of culture. And I I didn't know how, for how much longer I was going to be cool. So, so I was already starting to, to think like, is, is this the right place for me? And also it's like, my only friends were my work friends. I had no personal life outside of the office. So I had already had these things in the back of my head that like at some point my life was going to have to shift. And then two things happened at the same time. There was an enormous management change in my company, which made my company no longer the company that it had been for 10 years. And then I woke up one morning, actually right around now, it was on the 9th of April, and I couldn't see out of my right eye. And I had gone to a meeting, I was meeting with lawyers, and here you have to read the contract out loud. And I couldn't read it because like, there were letters missing, there were lines in the middle of where I was supposed to be seeing. And so when it wasn't my turn to read, now Googling, like what the hell is going on with my eyes? And the first thing that came back on Google was that it was a pre-stroke. And I'm the type of person that unless like my limbs are falling off, I will not go to the doctor. However, everyone on my mother's side passed away from strokes. And so I saw the word stroke and I was like, okay, let me take this a little bit seriously. And I finished the meeting and I went straight to one of the hospitals here, private hospital, and had them just run a whole bunch of tests. And by the end of the day, they were like, it's not an optical problem. That's where it's showing up. But you need to be checked into the hospital to have extensive neurological testing, which it did. And it was funny because if things went well, they would give you a worse test right? Like, so if the MRI is good, then you get a lumbar puncture. It's like, okay, you know, this feels weird, but fine. And so I went through all this testing and there was nothing that they were able to identify as like sticking out. It's not a disease. It's not rooted in something. And they were like, we think it's a domino effect that happens from your lifestyle and how you've been living. So it's possible that, you know, you had a vitamin deficiency that caused an erosion of your myelin sheath, which caused the information in your optic nerve to not go quickly. But they said ultimately that it was due to to the way I'd been living and the way I'd been working, which, and this is one of the things I always like to underline when I talk about burnout, is that there's a sort of stereotype that A, it's a psychological problem, that B comes from like hating your life or hating what you do. And I can tell you that that is not the case. I loved my job and it did not show up as a psychological problem. It 100% showed up as a short circuit in my, in Mm. my body. So it, you know, you can, it can come at you from a lot of different ways, which is why I think that, you know, burnout needs to be studied a lot more because it tends to have been pigeonholed into one thing and it's not. Mm. So basically, you worked yourself into almost blindness, is what you're saying. Fortunately, so I am also a big believer in Eastern medicine. One of my first phone calls is always my acupuncturist when something Mm -hmm. goes wrong. And so when they released me from the hospital and they were kind of explaining it as like a short circuit or an electrical short circuit, I was like, oh, okay, I know who can fix that. And, you know, whether it would have gone back to normal on its own or not, uh, 
you know, I'll never know, but I did, as soon as I got out of the hospital, I did three weeks of sessions with her and my vision came back within the end, by the end of the month. Wow. Wow. And then did you, how, how long did you stay then with, with Alexa or or Ray-Ban after that? I left in May, May 15th was my last day. So you stayed another month and that was it. Well, yeah, because I had already started kind of like working part time. I was only working on Ray-Ban at the end. As I said, like my my dialing back down, I had given up the retail brands and I had hired another person to come and do gotcha. some of the other brands. And so it, it, it there was some me stepping out of it. If if this had not happened, if I'd not ended up in the hospital and if there was had not been a management change in the company at the same time, I would probably still be there today. Wow. Wow. And then um, kind of shift gears, what that motivated you to start studying stress and burnout, because obviously you're a very curious person. And as you said early on is you're going to really, if you like something, you're going to study it. And so for you, this was, okay, this was a major turning point in your life. There was obviously probably some other personal things going on. And then you then went back to school to study neuroscience and mental health. Is that correct? I did. Yes. And it was so after that burnout incident, nothing that I have done between then and now has been planned. I have done nothing but pick up the breadcrumbs that I thought that life was leaving me. So if you had asked me in 2015 or 2016, would I be sitting here today having this conversation with you? I would have said you are insane because the thought of going back to school at 43 was the absolute furthest thing from my mind. And I would always kind of been like an artsy girl, you know, artsy culture, like the thought of going to study science, you know, right. My science, my science, every time I was up at night crying over the names of pieces of the brain, I was thinking that this was finally my seventh grade science teacher's revenge. There were a couple of things that happened. As you said, there were some other personal things that happened with some friends of mine that were suffering from very sort of traumatic and very serious depression and anxieties. I've dealt with mental health in my family, you know, my own parents. And, and so I've always had a curiosity, you know, psychology has always been a love of mine. And I was very curious about neuroscience. I'd started taking some classes online. And then one day I was at a a work convention and one of the speakers is a very famous neuroscientist. And it, for me, it was just a religious experience. It was 20, 20 minutes, but it felt like, Mm. you know, I had moved into a whole other dimension and the things that he was saying and, and showing were things that I had like thought about you know, or things that I believed on a theoretical level, but didn't have any evidence for. And he was giving me the scientific evidence Mm. for things that, that I had long believed. And so I was like, all right, now I love neuroscience and now I want to know everything. And thanks to Facebook, listening to my phone calls and conversations, (laughs) I managed to get, I managed to get miracle. You know, I was like, it's either destiny or Mark Zuckerberg, but one of the two (laughs) managed to, yes, managed to serve me up an ad for a postgraduate program in the neuroscience and psychology of mental health at King's College. 
And I had no idea what I was going to do with it, but I knew I had to take the course. And, and so I did, and I finished that. And it was during my studies there that I sort of triangulated what I would be doing now because, or what I am doing now, because we were studying stress and how stress starts with the thoughts, right? And it sounds very Buddhist or Eastern, but it's 100% science. So they've been saying it for 5,000 years and we now have the evidence that that's true. And that if you can control your thoughts, you can control the physiological reactions in your body. Mm. And and this was just epic to me. And they do, obviously it's very hard to, it's not hard, it's impossible to test emotions and mood in a real world situation because you'd have to have like a team of scientists waiting in the corner for you to have a specific emotion. So what they do is they call people into clinical settings and they give them these things called mood inductions and they put them into specific moods. So they may make you angry or they make you euphoric or sad or um, neutral. There were all these different techniques that they would use to change your emotional state. They would run a bunch of tests and then they would put you back into the emotional state. And in many of these tests, they would use it to control stress levels, HRV, you know, your heart rate variables, cortisol levels, even in one there was serotonin levels. And, and so I was thinking while I'm reading this, well, if you can adjust a person's stress response in a clinical setting using this mood induction thing, why can't I do it in a real life setting? And so I set off to discover what this mystery mood induction was. And it turns out it's just creative materials. It's, you know, videos and audios and images and words. And I was like, that's, I just won a bunch of awards for doing that for the last 20 years. Like, this is what I do for a living. And I called, I looked actually all over the world for the university person to talk to about this. And it turns out they were like literally 20 meters away from me. And there's a PhD professor at the Universita Catolica. It's called the UNICAT. They have a department that focuses specifically on discrete emotions. And so I said, I showed her my hypothesis and I said, I think I can use creative materials designed according to scientific parameters to shift people's moods in real time. Is that insane? And she, she laughed and she was like, I can't believe no one's thought of it beforehand. She's like, but it's a hundred percent viable and it's scientifically sound. So that, that was the beginning of the next chapter. (laughs) Yeah. So you, so you, so you went into, you know, kind of what you're doing now, which is mood management, working, you know, developing this program. So let's talk about Moodly. What, how, what was, where did that come from? Obviously you just shared with us some of your insights and your thoughts and your ideas, but what was that process of birthing that? (laughs) It almost put me into a second burnout, I'll tell you I came very close on multiple occasions to just like taking everything and throwing it out the window. Well, first I decide because I'm not, I have an entrepreneurial spirit, but I am not an entrepreneur. So that's Mm. the the challenge is there and learning, you know, anytime you have to learn something new, your brain freaks out because it, 
it wants to stay comfortable. It doesn't want to have to learn how to walk every day. It wants to just stick to the tried and true. And I'm constantly pushing myself to, to do something new. And occasionally I rebel against my, my own self. So, but it started with an app and I was like, and it was actually before COVID started, I had started working on it, like in November of 2019, writing the scripts for, for this app. And then I spent, oh, probably we finished production on it in like May or June of 2020. And by that point I had people like, you need to like speed this up because everyone mental health was, it was like for the first time people were really starting to talk about mental health, not as like the problem of the crazies in the corner, but it is like, this is a serious epidemic and, and maybe we've underestimated its importance in the past. So I started doing that, but the problem is I'm, I am driven by growth evolution impact and and so I am someone who likes to do the job I don't like to chase the job and what I learned what happened with the app was that I was spending my whole day trying to figure out how to get in touch with VCs or how to make myself attractive to this financer or how to get new people on, on the, you know, new users and 10x this and 100x that, that none of what I had built it for was actually happening, which I found very frustrating. And I also realized that from where I was to profitability was a, a long, if not infinite journey. And I'm a single mother. So, you know, I still got to pay my mortgage. And so I, and I also like genuinely just wanted to, to me, it was about getting this information out. I felt very privileged and obligated once I figured out like how stress works and how we can actually help ourselves because stress is ultimately way more complicated and more dangerous than we have any concept of and mm. way easier to manage than we might think. It, it just requires discipline and consistency, but the techniques are not hard. And so, you know, to me, it was like just trying to get this information out there. So I pivoted a little or just did some add-ons and started making it really about talking to a B2B, B2B consumer and taking keynote speeches, group, non-group counseling, but uh, group couch coaching and also one-on-one stuff. And now I also have added on like a sort of an easy bridge into it, this white label content that I'm doing where I provide the organization with sort of bite-sized pieces of wellness and performance skills that they can just send to their, their organization without having to do extensive research. Like I've already done it for them. That's great. That's great. Let's talk for just a couple of minutes about the meat of of what you experienced. I know, Erica, what it's like to burn out. I know what it's like to have, you know, mental exhaustion. But I also know that those can be really significant times in our lives that it's, it's like switches that are turned on and off. One of my favorite quotes is Viktor Frankl when he said that when we find ourselves in a situation that we cannot change, we're challenged to change ourselves. And um, I know that that was true for me, and obviously it was true for you. But the lessons that are learned are, are invaluable, and they only come, obviously, with time and experience and pain. But 
but what how how prevalent in in your opinion and obviously you have some science and research you you become probably an expert in this how prevalent is burnout today so i would say it's probably way more prevalent than we think because people are showing up and diagnosing symptoms that are related to burnout but it's not being categorized as that so i would say that a lot of times people are suffering from it and it's being diagnosed as something else. Hmm. Um, then the official numbers on burnout can go anywhere from nine to 16%, like clinical situations like right. mine. If you talk to people anecdotally, the numbers, especially of late, are anywhere from 50 to 60% of hmm. people would say that they have burnt out. Now, again, there it's a, a little bit of a spectrum because there's the the full on like can't get out of bed situation and then there's the also just like emotionally drained not making a judgment that one is more serious than the other but some people will get here and continue pushing through until finally the body's like no we are done like you are going to sit down and we're going to do something else but it is definitely definitely on the rise. And, and the problem is, is that the way the brain is wired, any behavior we repeat, it wires itself to repeat it faster and more automatically in the future in an right. effort to be helpful, right? We couldn't, we would be very inefficient beings if every single day we had to relearn everything in our life, right? right. So as right. soon as we learn to walk, that that connection is wired and, and locked. So we don't have to learn that again. So even with our emotional responses and our emotional behaviors, it's the same thing. This is why you can get triggered just at the thought of something because it's like you're bringing up a very active and consolidated emotional response. And so the problem is, is that until we are aware of the behaviors that get us into trouble, we'll just keep doing them. So, you know, it's like kind of walking blindly even further into the corridor. Mm. Uh, and this is why to me, it's, you know, it's so the education above all else is so important because the techniques, of course, you know, especially if you use creative ones, you can have ones that work better and ones that work less. But to me, if without the understanding, the fundamental understanding of what exactly is happening to you, you lack the inherent motivation to want to take care of yourself. Mm. An example I frequently use is that I had seen a nutritionist years ago and she was like, get up once an hour and move around. She didn't tell me why. She just told me what to do. Now, as humans, we don't usually love when other people tell us what to do. Some of us will, will do it. I didn't until I went to another nutritionist who gave me the same exact information, but told me that the reason was if I sit still, then my fat cells would sort of like fall asleep and are the ones that needed to be burned would fall asleep, but waking up and like shaking myself once an hour would prevent that from happening. Hmm. Now I have all the full information to know it's like, okay, well, now I know why I'm doing it. That gives me more motivation to do it. Hmm. So my mission is really about getting the information out there so people can make it themselves or make their own choice and be like, oh no, I, I shouldn't <laughs> react that way again. So what is mood management? I know that's that's the kind of the center of the 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 bullseye of 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 your work and really what you try to help organizations look at, manage. Tell me kind of in an in a nutshell, what is mood management and why is it so important? 
Well, your mood comes before everything else that happens in your day. And we are aware of this on an intuitive level. If I give you a mental exercise where I give you a series of things that happen that put you in a bad mood, and then I give you a situation, you'll respond to that situation in one way. If I take the same scenario, but I say, now you're in a good mood and that same thing happens, what? How, how would you react? The response is usually the exact opposite. So when we see in, in these examples, we're aware of the fact that our moods completely change how we interact with the world around us. Like we're conscious of it. And I did a study also asking people how much they were aware of the impact that mood had on their productivity and performance. And 99% of the people that responded said that they were completely aware that when they're in a bad mood, they do not perform well. They are not productive. They are less friendly. They don't want to be that, you know, it's a universal situation. Now, it's also a physiological situation because your brain reacts differently. There's a different part of your brain that's turned on when you're angry or, or over-emotional or upset or aggressive. And it means that your learning pathways are blocked. Your memory is skewed. Your attention and your focus is shifted. So everything that creates what you experience as life is colored by the mood that you're in. And so what, what we try and do is really make people aware of, A, the importance of being conscious of your mood state, right? Sometimes we can be aware of it and just ignore it. That's a very bad idea. One of the I, of those 99% of the people that knew that their bad moods impacted their, their well-being and their performance, only 1% of them had healthy coping mechanisms. The others were wait until the end of the day, which is terrible because that's an entire day that your system is flooded with cytokines and you know harmful cortisone reactions and stuff like that. All that good stuff. <laughs> right. You can't wait until the end of the day because your system's been you know, over flooding all day, it needs to be taken care of in real time. So first of all, learning the dynamics, learning to understand the language that goes around moods, because we actually have very, very limited emotional language. And there is a lot of research and science from Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett about the importance of emotional granularity and being able to identify one emotion from another, and that it actually if you rearticulate or reframe your anxiety as excitement, hmm. then how your body reacts changes. And so learning all of these, you know, the dynamics behind it, the language around it, learning your triggers, and then having the tools and the strategies in place to respond when it happens. Because a lot of the times we're also like, I'm in a bad mood. I don't want to be, but I don't know what to do. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you have a list of, well, here's 10 things you can try, it actually reduces the amount of stress beca because you know, you can solve it. Mm. That's great. Give me a brief example of, let's say, I'm in a work situation, uh, day starts great, I get an email that really ticks me off, and I'm just in a bad mood, and I can't seem to stop thinking about that email and what that person said. What would be your advice? 
Well, the first thing you have to do, as I said, your thoughts command your body's responses. So as long, and this is a classic situation. Something happens that triggers us. We don't know why on a conscious level, we don't know why it's triggering us. Usually it's some sort of either the person, what the person has said has suggested that we were wrong or something that the person has said is obstructing our goal achievement. Like we want to get from point A to point B and they've inserted themselves in the middle or they've taken somehow our sense of control over how things unfold away from us. These are sort of the three big triggers macro categories of things that we respond to over the day. And, and once that happens, we ruminate and we go over and over and over and over and over. And that is exactly the behavior that has to be interrupted immediately because all of that rumination is what it's like, uh, you know, what's it called? A whisking you up, whisking the egg whites into it. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then usually what we do is we don't even stop there. We'll pick up the phone and we'll call somebody and we'll bitch about what just happened or we'll tell another colleague. And then what you're doing is now you're starting to spread your bad mood to other people because that right. energy 100% rubs off on others. There is a study, many studies done by Dr. Um, Sigal Barsade from Yale, actually Harvard now, I think, that mood is contagious. Bad moods are contagious and they affect group dynamics. And that not only do they affect the person's individual abilities, but they also affect how the group relates to each other. And so what I would say is what you want to do is like the second you get conscious of the fact that you're going over and over and over in this, you must step away from it and you must intentionally divert the thoughts to something else. Mm. And you can do this either with having a playlist ready or going into the bathroom and, and like shaking it out. Or you go in and you do a personal interview. Why are you so upset? What is about it? Like what's bothering you about that? What look, is there another way we could perceive this? Are we sure they meant it in the way that we say it? Use cognitive reframing techniques to try and shift that from being whatever it was that triggered you into, well, maybe it's something else. Right. The, the entire thing is really just to settle, to tell the, the back of your brain to calm down, <laughs> that mm. things are going to be fine, that you have the ability to, to overcome whatever it is that's in front of you. That's why we get stressed is because we don't think that we have the skills or the ability to face what's being thrown at us. And so we react and the idea is, eh, it's, it's okay. Like you want to almost like pet the back of your head and be like, it's going to be fine and give back the power to your, the front part of your brain, mm. which is reasonable, rational, and is the part that down regulates your mood. That's, that's amazing. How can people, if they're listening to this and they like what they hear, it's interesting and we can all benefit no matter individually or in a work situation. How can they learn more about Moodly and what do you offer? Well, right now I'm only B2B. However, I do write a lot and I have a podcast. So there's always, if you find me on LinkedIn, I have a ton of information that I put up there. I'm on Instagram at moodly.wellness. There's also a ton of information there or my podcast Moodly Matters, or there is if you go to my website at moodily.com, there's a whole bunch of tools that for free that people can use to, to help them regulate their moods. So and that's M that's M O O D A L L Y like mood ally. Correct. That's correct. 
And it was moodily your mood ally. So. Yeah. Well, Erica, this has been really, really interesting. Thank you for sharing your life story. I love your work. I'm going to continue to follow you. And if anyone's interested, and if you're a business and you run and you're a leader or you'd like to share it with your leader, certainly moodily is an option in a business to business type environment, correct? Yes. And actually the white label content is a fantastic solution for even smaller companies because it's priced really affordably. I did that so that it would be accessible to as many organizations as possible. Well, Erica, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Love your work. Certainly, I love the the journey that you've been on. And I know it's been difficult, but the beautiful thing is there's some really great things that came out of it and we're all benefiting from it. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me. All right. Look up Erica on Instagram, LinkedIn, any other any other outlets before I let you go that people can connect with you if they need to. Well, I'm on Facebook, but I don't think anybody's on Facebook anymore. <laughs> All right, Erica. Thanks so much. We'll talk to yeah. you soon.